0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I co-host Launchpad with Rob Conniebeer. Rob is managing director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties, mostly broadcasting from the Wharton School campus in San Francisco, sometimes from from Philadelphia. I'm lucky to be in San Francisco today on a beautiful day. And really looking forward to our show. The basic idea behind Launchpad is that while Rob and I both believe and understand that entrepreneurship is intrinsically a risky endeavor, after all, you're doing something that hasn't been done before. Typically there are some things you can do to increase your chances of success. So the basic idea behind the show, is we bring in each week typically four entrepreneurs. We talk about the challenges they're facing in launching and growing their businesses, and we look for opportunities to underscore tools, principles, methods, and approaches that we think can can really help you improve your chances of success. Some of you are, in fact, entrepreneurs engaging in this journey yourselves, and we definitely speak directly to you and some of you are thinking you might want to take the plunge and so we hope to give you a realistic window into the world of entrepreneurship and probably most of you are just interested in what's new in business and that's certainly one of the things that really attracts me to entrepreneurship is just the excitement and intrinsic interest in doing something new but to start off the show i'm lucky to be joined on the line by jim brady who's the founder and ceo of spirited media jim welcome to launchpad Thanks for having me. All right. So first things first, I guess I'll just point our listeners to your to the parent company website, which is spiritedmedia.com. Just the word spirited and the word media.com. No hyphen or anything like that. Spiritedmedia.com. Uh, Jim, give us the elevator pitch for Spirited Media.
1: It's a site for people under the age of 40 and urban in urban. Areas. I think we you know, I have a long career in the newspaper business, felt very strongly that there wasn't that. Um,
0: All right, Jim. So, so we're having a little bit um, of a, I've got a, I've got a lousy connection with you. So I'm hoping that that just uh, intermittently gets better, but um, I want to, I guess, well, while, while we work in that line, uh, just to reiterate, Spirited Media is the parent company of a couple of of local media sites, and we're going to probably talk about those in 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 turn. But uh, the initial target markets are Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and and Denver. And um, and it, it, while our listeners, while we're working on that line, the you could go to the. Let me give the, the URL for at least the Philly uh, site, which is Billy Penn, uh, which refers to uh, Billy is short for William Penn, who was the, uh, essentially the founder of the, of the city of, of Philadelphia. So Billy Let's see, Jim, or have we got you back? Okay. 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 So Jim's, Jim's still calling us in on a, on a line. So this is a really, uh, topical, segment because of the major transitions that we've been having in the media industry and I think it's a i'm particularly excited to get Jim's perspectives because he's been in the the journalism and and media business his whole career and has really watched this remarkable transition that that began with the the internet and is continuing today. Uh, in fact, I just saw that. Uh, Time Magazine was purchased by Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of of Salesforce, and uh, that follows in the footsteps of Jeff Bezos' acquisition of the of the Washington Post, and so in some ways we're seeing a a resurgence in interest in the media and a revitalization of some of these venerable properties. And I think there's really cause for optimism in in journalism after what looked like possibly even the death of of newspapers. So super interested to get uh, Jim's perspective on on uh, the, the the media the media business. Um, so let's see. Let me also just give you a sense of of what else we've got coming up later in the in the hour. So. Uh, Travis Katz, who's going to be, will be joining us in the studio, is the co-founder of, uh, okay, it looks like we've got, got Jim back, which is good, because um, uh, we want to connect back to that segment. Okay, Jim, let's try again. So let's just do the elevator pitch for Spirited Media again.
1: Elevator. The elevator pitch is that there aren't a lot of uh, news sites out there for people under the age of 40 in local markets. There's a lot of national uh, sites out there aiming for that demographic, but young urban professionals. Do not really have these uh, organizations that are trying to attract them, and we are trying to do that.
0: All right. So tell us about. Let's just take some of these properties. I think you've got three of them now. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what's different about what they are and what's different about them?
1: Well, I think I think it starts with the idea of uh, having a sense of place. I think uh, as a guy who worked in the newspaper industry for a long time, um, newspapers do a very good job of kind of being. Uh, of the community, but not a very good job of being with them. They don't speak in a voice that people connect to. They don't get out into the community in ways that I think are important to reach a young audience uh, in this generation. So we we base our revenue model mostly on events and on membership, and we want people to be a part of what we do because they care about what we do rather than they're paying for access and they're paying for distribution. So it's a very different model in that regard, and I think we feel very strongly that this generation is is seeking something different than the 40 and over generation.
0: Okay. So why don't we take, uh, as I understand it, you've got uh, three properties initially, Billy Penn in, in, in Philadelphia, and then uh, uh, a, a market in Pittsburgh and a market in Denver. Yep. Let's start with right. Philadelphia. Cause that's essentially my adopted hometown. Uh, tell us what, what, what the user would experience, what this, this uh well I think with uh, the
1: experiences you know they'll exper- hey there's a lot of things we do differently than I feel like most legacy brands do is we do write with a lot of voice. We're also of the mind that any piece of information that's useful to a young Philadelphian is something we should connect them to. So we're very aggressive in curation in addition to writing our own our own work, which is it sounds like sort of an obvious thing to do in a digital world linked to other people, but it's a it's been a real sore spot for a lot of traditional media brands who don't think linking out is you know, good strategy because they fear they're going to send people to other sites. So we're very much of the mindset that if you come to Billy Penn or Denverite or the Incline in Pittsburgh, you're going to find out everything that's of interest to a young consumer in the markets. And by doing that, we feel like we start to build a relationship with them that we can then leverage when we go to membership.
0: Okay, so uh, that's, that's I think, a really important distinction. It lets me ask a follow-up question, which is you're linking to outside content. You're syndicating and curating other information that might be relevant to your to your reader, uh, how much of the content on Billy Penn or the other sites would be would be uh, original content created by you? We
1: produce 8 to 10 stories a day on each of the three sites, and we probably link out to 20, 30 things. Some of those things are stories, some of them are YouTube videos, some of them are tweets, so probably only one-fourth of everything you see is actually originated there, but an important distinction for me is we link to all of those things. We don't try to own any of them ourselves we just try to be a pass through for a consumer who's strapped for time and is looking to get as much information conveniently as possible in a short period of time
0: okay so in the in the philly market the the biggest competitor i i actually don't know but i'm guessing it would probably be the inquiry site the com. how first of all is that true and if so how would you contrast billy penn to the legacy site <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is true. Probably they've also been a partner of ours. We've done a couple of reporting projects with them where we jointly reported out. We did something on the market Frankfurt line uh, last year where we reported half the pieces and they reported half the pieces. So, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call anybody a competitor. Or, uh, you know, uh, my line for a long time has been media is sort of in a huddling for warmth phase right now. That if we're not trying to help each other out, then <laughs> this is a bad time to be trying to go on our own. So I think, I mean, I think they 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 are much more comprehensive than we are. Um, they can cover almost everything in town, and I think our attitude is we can't. We have you know four reporters in Philadelphia, so let's look for places that are not being covered rather than being the fifteenth person standing at a press conference. If we do that, we're losing. So we're just trying to add context, and we tend to step back and do more explanatory stuff than breaking news.
0: Okay, so so uh, that's a pretty good description, I think, of what I'd find if I go on the website or on the on the app uh, to see the. To, to see the site. You mentioned, however, uh, offline activities. Can you talk a little bit about what those are?
1: Yeah, I think when you go after an under 40 market, one of the things you find in doing research on that demographic is you see this phrase come up frequently that says they prefer experiences over possessions. And I think for us to monetize uh, the sort of under 40 set, we knew that we had to give them experiences and not possessions. So that means giving them things to go to and to uh, events to attend rather than things to buy on the website, hence our focus less on advertising and more on events. So we throw probably between the three sites about 100 events a year, Uh, and our goal is to meet the people who come to the site and get them to tell other people about what we're doing rather than have it be an only kind of digital arm's-length relationship. And so we're actually having our bash tomorrow night in Pittsburgh, our second anniversary party for the site in Pittsburgh tomorrow. We'll have a couple hundred people there to, celebrate what we're doing. But we think that helps bind us, bind people to what we do a lot more than just reading us.
0: Yeah. So say a little bit more about a typical event. You're having a, 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 a an anniversary celebration for yourselves. And I sort of get what that might be like. But is that a typical event? What would be a, a typical event that, that you might engage me, your, your readers in?
1: Yeah, I'd say starting from the bottom up, I mean, we do like watch parties for major sports events or major political events or things where we know the city is kind of all circled around one event. We will just get a place someplace and have a bunch of our readers show up somewhere. But I think when you move up the ladder a little bit, um, we do this thing called Who's Next, where we, every month we honor 15 to 20 people under the age of 40 in each of our cities who are excelling in a certain area. It might be law, it might be medicine, it might be athletics, and we have an event every month to honor those. It's sort of the 40, 40 under 40 thing a lot of city magazines do, but we do it every month. And we have an event tied to each of those so that we can honor young people doing good things in the city. And I think that's another ties to another thing I think we're, we do differently is we do write a lot of stories about people who are trying to make the city better. I think one of the struggles legacy media has, and as I said, I came from legacy media, we tend to focus a lot on the negative, And I think that wears people down sometimes. And these events are a reminder of how many people who are doing good things in our cities.
0: So, uh, tell say a little bit more about the the business model. So, how do how do you make money, or or how do you hope to make money?
1: So those events, uh, we get sponsors, you know, because we do them on a very uh, specific uh, subject. If we do law, for example, it's not hard to find a law firm that wants to sponsor an event where you have 15 to 20 young uh, up-and-coming lawyers. Same thing in communications and politics. And Then we do food and drink sponsorships at those events, and we sell tickets. And Mm -hmm. I think beyond that, we do a lot on, you know, membership, which is let's get people who, you know, membership, I should say, is not subscription. There's no access tied to membership for us. It's... People give us money because they want us to continue to be able to do what we're doing. There are member-only events and there are perks for being a member, but the truth is, most people give to us because they like what we do and they want us to continue doing it, which is a model I, I'd rather have than an access-driven model.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's laudable. Uh, how how well does it work? You're able, to, if you, in terms of the the fraction of people who who use your site regularly, how many are opting in to to give you some some membership fees? Ooh.
1: We launched through we launched in February so we're about six plus months into this We have about fifteen hundred people paying us an average of hundred and twenty bucks a year now for a small site like ours, it doesn't have massive staff that adds up to a decent amount of money for you know a site that runs pretty lean and yeah. um now it's not the only business model we wouldn't be able to make it just on that hence doing events and advertising and other other revenue streams but we do want membership over time Events and membership my goal is for twenty nineteen will be seventy five percent of the revenue this year it's going to be a little less than half partially yeah. because. Membership has to ramp
0: up. Yeah, um, and so in in that sense, it sort of looks like some of the models you see in 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 tech more broadly, sort of freemium models, mm-hmm. where access to certain content in your case, all your content is free, but there's then an additional kicker or additional fee that is probably captured by only some tiny fraction of your market, but can Correct. be sufficient mm-hmm. to make the business work. And so, you know, yeah. I just underscore that is a That's not a wildly unusual model and is one that's proven to work uh, elsewhere. It's
1: slightly unusual for media, I would say. Like most people who charge for websites tend to charge for access rather than for, you know. And that's that's where we're trying to break that model there. I agree that in broader tech it is a pretty common model in media. We tend to kind of want to keep you outside the gate until you pay a certain amount of money. But there are limits to that. You know, if you charge 6 bucks a month for access, you get 6 bucks a month Mm -hmm. we have people giving us a thousand dollars and people giving us five dollars a month
0: i see so
1: there's a lot of freedom in that and that you can you're not tying people into a very fixed fee that costs you the people above and below
0: okay so tim jim take us back to the beginning where did this uh, well I, i suppose we we could go all the way back to the beginning uh and and maybe that would be worth doing so i noticed you you studied journalism in college looks like you finished up in if if your LinkedIn profile can be believed in nineteen eighty nine. And you've been in the in journalism and media really pretty much ever since. So maybe give us a sense I lie of lie
1: about nineteen
0: eighty nine. So oh, is that wrong? <laughs> no, it
1: is true. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. If I was gonna lie, I'd say two thousand six.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, <laughs> um, but No, yeah, I've been in journalism my whole career, mostly at uh, large media organizations. I was at the Washington Post for a long time and uh, AOL when AOL was a cool thing. Um, But I think after I left my last job, which was with digital first media, I was sort of out of patience in terms of – whether big media companies were going to get this right, and I just felt like there was too much, you know, a, that there was great peril in those uh, companies because they were all struggling financially, and the and the real priority was to maintain the legacy revenue stream. Understandably, in a lot of ways, but it also meant the the willingness to innovate was limited. And so I think after I left Digital First, I thought, you know what, I have enough money salted away. and My wife and I agreed this would be a fun thing to do, and uh, also really felt like there was a model there for local journalism on digital platforms that could work and that it wasn't uh, as futile as people made it out to be that uh, local's dead it doesn't scale there's all these things that people always tell you local journalism or local media can't do there's a lot of things it can do and it connects with the community in a way that national brands struggle and i think that's what we're trying to monetize is that loyalty and the sense that people want good journalism in their communities and they are willing to pay for it directly rather than pay for access. So that's that was sort of what we predicated this on. And that if you really look at the digital transformation of our society, you know, it's really under the age of 40, people experience or, or, or consume news totally differently than people over the age of 40. It's just because of the natural break of technology. And because most of these media companies are really struggling to figure out how to maintain their core audience. They don't have enough, they don't, they don't have the resources to go after the younger audience. And we felt like that was the place we should go.
0: Yeah. So let's, I want to just get you to sharpen that point just a little bit. So if I, unless you were a child prodigy, uh, you're not under 40, uh, I'm not either. So we're, we are describing this demographic to which we do not, we do not ourselves belong. And. Correct. How did you arrive at that insight that it was really that under forty? i mean I suppose one one thing is they're the ones who who are spending money. I suppose that's one one argument, but mm-hmm. uh it wouldn't have been a natural maybe just say a little bit more about how you decided on that segment as your target
1: well even as even as a guy who is fifty one now I've always felt like I've had a somewhat youthful uh, appreciation for technology and consumption of news, and so yeah. i you know I was on the washington dot com launch team and 1996 and everybody at the newspaper told me I was nuts for going to this thing that was going to clearly be a fad. So like for a long time, I've kind of been on this bandwagon and I feel like I've always consumed the news in a way that's probably younger than my actual calendar age. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, you know, you could see that the world is moving to mobile. The world is moving to much more of a BuzzFeed, Voxy kind of voice and Mm -hmm. delivery. And, you know, and, and I was moving toward curation. It was moving toward all sorts of things that were not natural for traditional news companies. And then adding another thing on top of that is the user experience of most local television and most local newspaper sites is dreadful. Pop-up ads that load time is really slow, and, and I just felt like, you know, we forget sometimes that just producing good journalism is not the answer to all of our problems. We have to actually be able to get that stuff to people in a way that doesn't it isn't torturous for them. And so we just kind of decided, look, let's go after something that's got voice, that's going to be designed for mobile. If you look at Billy Penn on a mobile phone versus a desktop, it looks totally different. It looks much better on the phone Mm -hmm. because that's where 80% of our audience comes from. Mm -hmm. So I think we were just looking for, like, in a way it was, uh, let's just go after all the things we know that most of the local media brands, legacy brands, cannot do. And I will tell you, one of my favorite stories is still when I raised our seed round um, I was pitching to a large media company and I said to them, look, and no offense, but like part of the reason we're succeeding is we're doing a whole bunch of things that not, not only that you're not doing that you can't do. And the guy who ran the company said, that's why you're here because we know we can't do it. And I thought that was kind of an interesting response was we're kind of going after places that are outside their range because they have to have those user experiences. They need to deliver all those ads to make enough money to keep, you know, keep the, uh, Profit at a level that's acceptable. So I think we just kind of we were just kind of going after what I knew the weaknesses were for twenty years being in the business.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to underscore that point because I think it generalizes pretty well to entrepreneurial opportunities, which is there are some opportunities that the incumbents literally cannot uh, pursue yeah. because they will destroy their their business model, and and they're in this awful position that they can't they can't they literally can't. And so they're either stuck with setting up something that's completely independent or allowing independent or or, uh, setting up something that's completely autonomous or allowing independent startups to go after these these opportunities. So it's a nice uh, this is a nice example of that strategy and one that I think generalizes uh, for others. And even
1: even an example you mentioned when you set something up separate, it really has to be separate because otherwise often even the separate things get kind of shut down when. the financial pressure tightens right i think that's why you know that's why it gets really tough to do these even entrepreneurial opportunities are are difficult
0: so take us back um, to the to the beginning you had this insight you wanted to do something in this space what what did you set out and then you it sounds like you raised a, a seed round what did you set out to accomplish what was the first step to validate this opportunity
1: well, we didn't raise the seed round for a year and a half, so my wife and I bootstrapped it for, I guess, 16 months. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that was the confidence we had in it. So, I think what we started out with is we had to pick the right city. Uh, we knew we were going after. I mean, we were looking for four things. We we're looking for a city with a either a lot of uh, under 40s or certainly an increase in under 40s in Philadelphia. It had a massive jump there between 2008 and 2013. We're looking for dense cities because if you only have a, a newsroom of four or five people, then you've got to be able to impact as many people as you can by covering the same things you can. not mm. It's hard to cover, uh, you know, like Dallas, Texas, for example, which is much more spread out than a city like Philly. We wanted a place where there was enough uh, economic upside for us to build a business, and we wanted to go to a place where we felt like there was enough distress in the local media scene to uh, make some noise. So that was really the four priorities. And I, I don't, you know, I, I don't live in Philadelphia. I'm a Washingtonian.
0: Mm-hmm. I grew
1: up in New York, so it's not... I didn't pick it for, like, oh, I just happen to live here. Let's start here. It was a very yeah. strategic decision.
0: Yeah. Well, it's uh, uh, that's another good insight, which is often entrepreneurs just start where it's convenient, and there are good reasons for yeah. doing that. But a little bit more deliberate thought, especially given that you had at least national ambition, um, it made, yeah. made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um,
1: well, it was funny when we were pitching, too. A lot of people were very much impressed that it was not the place I happened to live. And we went out to raise a seed round that the site already existed as opposed to trying to raise money to launch it. It was that, look, we had enough confidence in this to go start it. Now we'd like to get a seed round so we can expand a little bit. But we put our money where our mouth was and got this thing up and running on our own dime, which I do think helped.
0: <clears throat> and and while we're at it, let's go ahead and put a, put a pitch in for Philadelphia. It is an awesome city. That's why all those young people yeah. are, are moving there. It is. It is. <laughs> Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Jim Brady, who's the founder and CEO of Spirited Media. Uh, Jim, I wonder if I can ask you, you know, given we've got you, and given this is a very unusual time in, or uh, seems to be a transitional time in 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 media. Um, just a little bit your your own perspective on on what's going on broadly in media, and I suppose there yeah. are a bunch of threads here. But I notice that uh, in recent years, I think I think we've given. It's been really exciting to see the transformations in The Washington Post and under, you know, with an unusual transition associated with a billionaire buying that paper. And then I just noticed yesterday, the day before, Mark Benioff apparently is buying Time magazine. Uh, Can you just give us your thoughts on what's happening in media and and your level of optimism for the future?
1: Well, it's you know I am an optimist internally it's uh I might be a rare breed in my own business these days, but I mean clearly the for legacy media you know the the news has generally been bad. I mean the business has cratered in the last ten fifteen years, and the ability to replace you know legacy revenue with digital revenue has not been proven yet. I think you do see the model of bezos uh, you know, Glenn Taylor in Minneapolis, John Henry in Boston are very uh, well-heeled people buying the local paper. And I do think that buys you time. I don't think it buys you time forever because they are mm-hmm. not going to be patient forever. But I, but I, So I think that's a nice model. And obviously, Jeff has given the Post amazing resources to expand, not just its newsroom, though, which I think is really the under underappreciated part of what Jeff has done with the Post that he's actually really staffed up on the development side and the data side. Mm-hmm. And all these areas that we talked about for a long time as being really, really important, but never really put the resources behind. And I think the fact that they've developed their own content management system, they're doing amazing work in terms of mining user data, I think is actually the path to follow. I think people tend to look at this like, oh, every, if just a rich person would buy every newspaper, we'd be fine. But, you know, as I always say, billionaires are not scalable either. Um But I do think there's an element of what he has done with the post is actually focus on things that we really struggle to focus on in most legacy brands because we were too focused on advertising and on the newsrooms, but the data and the technology part have really been crucial. And I think that's a good sign of what we have to do to make it going forward is we have to rethink what we focus on. And that means not focusing as much on the newsrooms as we traditionally have, which As somebody raised in journalism, people kind of throw their arms up in in horror when you say that. But the truth is the business has changed. And our future is going to be made on, I think, mining data properly and building better technology we've done today. And obviously the newsrooms can take advantage of that. But I think without those first two things, I think the impact of the newsrooms will be blunted.
0: Yeah, well... I too am an optimist, and I think these are exciting times. Um, Jim, just in in you know, we just have about a minute left. But but how's it going, and what can we look for in the future from Spirited Media?
1: Going well. I mean, we've you know, it's funny. We've kind of developed into this interesting model where we make money on events, we make money on membership, we make money on advertising, but we also are starting to make a lot of money on actually you know, sort of monetizing our knowledge. So we've we've developed a very quickly a pretty significant consulting business as well, where we help other people who are trying to figure out local uh digital journalism both on a legacy and a non-legacy uh uh, types and as a a result we're like we've actually that's going to be about 30 percent of our revenue this year is just monetizing knowledge and i think that's one of those cases where you go where the money takes you and you start to build this whole other business you did not realize and it's been a joy this year for us to be able to do that so it's going well
0: all right well jim thanks so much for making the time and for joining me today
1: Glad to join. Sorry for the problems at the beginning.
0: Oh, no problem. Okay, so for more information about Spirited Media, just go to spiritedmedia.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.